John Arquila on hybrid warfare. Every day the validity of the concept is denied, and understanding and mastery are delayed, is another day that sees the spread of conflict, suffering, and the deaths of countless innocents. Welcome to Reciprocal Presupposition, Radically Relational Radio, broadcasting through the facilities of CFFF 92.7 FM, Trent Radio, in Peterborough, Ontario, Canada. I'm Joshua Noiseau. RP is a new political talk show that emerges from the idea that relationality, the connections and interactions between people and our environments, should form the basis for thinking about politics today. RP engages challenging subjects in the fields of politics, ethics, philosophy, and media theory, all while striving to stay accessible to non-academic listeners. Regular conversations with special guests, including writers, academics, students, and artists, help us unpack the pressing issues that define technological capitalism today. This is where the rubber of political theory hits the road of real-life media practice. This is Reciprocal Presupposition, Episode 8, Hybrid War on the Radio, How Does War Become Hybrid? Part 1 of a multi-part series on agency and strategy in contemporary warfare. This will be the first of probably four, maybe five-part series, which is basically a thesis on the radio. This is a graduate thesis work that was done by myself in 2015, adapted for the radio. Now, it's a bit of a departure from our previous shows in which we dealt with science studies, the idea of posthumanism, media theory, uh, and, and media archaeological art practices. In the past couple of shows, we've had professors from Trent University, we've had doctoral students from Germany and Canada, we've dealt with topics like the politics of video game, media infrastructure in Canada, and so on. But now, we're entering a new and exciting phase for reciprocal presupposition. Transitioning to more overtly political topics and towards topics that have more to do with the title of the show, Reciprocal Presupposition, and what it has to do with the idea of agency, which will become clearer as the show progresses. In the next few weeks on Reciprocal Presupposition, you'll hear a mixture of two different but ultimately very related streams of thinking. On the one hand, the radio thesis, Hybrid War on the Radio, which takes us on a trip through the happenings and theorizings about war in the 21st century and ends up at some striking philosophical conclusions. Conclusion, well, not really conclusions, more so beginnings. Beginnings of ongoing research that I'm doing on, on the idea of agency, how action occurs in the world, from who, by what, and causality, the idea of occurrence, how things occur. So that's on the one hand, this, this multi-part series on war in the 21st century called hybrid war on the radio. On the other hand, the other stream, I'm in the process of lining up a number of shows with some really amazing guests. 
Some people who are truly inspirational to me personally and who are some top-notch thinkers and theorists. I don't want to say too much more right now, but stay tuned. It's going to be Dees. So as these two streams weave themselves together over the next few weeks, what I hope is going to become evident is a kind of convergence. Just in time for September, when I personally get back down to business on my own research at Trent University in the Cultural Studies Department, the themes of this show will be resonating strongly with what I'm going to be researching and working on. This is my clever plan. Remember, you can check us out on facebook.com forward slash reciprocal presupposition to stay abreast of the latest happenings on the show. We welcome comments, suggestions, angry little Facebook faces. Any way you want to get in touch, feel free. So now, tonight's episode, How Does War Become Hybrid?, which is adapted from the 2015 thesis, Becoming Hybrid, Towards a Critical Theory of Agency in War, by myself, your host, Joshua Nwazu. At one point during the Ukrainian crisis, Russia had 40,000 troops lined up on the Ukrainian border. But when it came to sowing instability in Ukraine, it was not these conventional forces who were used, but rather unorthodox and varied techniques which have been dubbed hybrid warfare. Russia is- so, what is hybrid warfare? Hybrid warfare is a conceptual framework that's employed by Western military theorists increasingly, to understand the nature of contemporary conflict. The primary feature of hybrid warfare is that it erases the distinctions between different modes of warfare, such as irregular and conventional war. It incorporates a wide variety of tactics like terrorism, information and cyber war, media war, propaganda and psychological warfare, economic, as well as conventional military firepower. Hybrid war is both a general description of the state of war in the 21st century and it's an instrumental framework or a suite of tactics that's employed by state and non-state actors or some combination of the two. In this broadcast, I will emphasize the former conception over the latter with the caveat that hybrid war theory does not go quite far enough in its conception of the blurring of the modes of conflict. We'll hear more about this shortly. Hybrid warfare theory gets some things right. What it correctly understands is that contemporary battle spaces are now diffuse, unrestricted, and multimodal, and state and non-state actors are equally active participants in war. And even since this thesis was originally written, we see more and more examples of this. We have these lone wolves attacking in Europe and in North America, claiming allegiance to ISIS and so on, as well as much larger bomb attacks in Iraq, and elsewhere throughout the world. These are examples of the diffusion of war outside of the conventional framework of state versus state. Hybrid warfare theory fails, though, to recognize a more important and more radical insight about contemporary conflict. It's it's that about the ontological hybridity, or the symbiotic quality of strategic subjects, those who do strategy, the agents of strategy, and strategic objects i.e. the enemy, those whose strategy is done to. Hybrid war and the ongoing diffusion of the means and modes of war 
shouldn't just be understood as a device that could somehow be operationalized by military forces. A more radical and a more interesting concept of the hybridity of war describes an already self-operationalizing logic of a war machine that unfolds and envelops the state in a process of perpetual conflict. While one entity or another may attempt to better utilize the strategy of hybrid or unrestricted or diffuse warfare, the fusion of war and politics tends to diminish the coherence of the idea of an actor or an entity or an agent, which reiterates the primacy of dispersion and relationality in the unfolding violence of the 21st century. But again, what, what is, what the hell is hybrid war? Well, the concept, hybrid war, was initially promoted by Lieutenant Colonel Frank G. Hoffman in his 2007 book titled Conflict in the 21st Century, The Rise of Hybrid Wars. And it's been gaining traction in recent years. The rise of the term as a descriptor for contemporary conflict follows the emergence and the persistence of these awkward little wars, the wars that would come to define our times, that increasingly simmer around the periphery of the Western world and ever more so within its boundaries. There's fighting ongoing still, although at a low level, in the Ukraine. This is not so much a civil war, but as a proxy or an unconventional conflict or hybrid war. In the north of Europe, I'm going to butcher, butcher this name, President Grabaskite of Lithuania claimed that a kind of undeclaimed, undeclared war is already engulfing that country, Lithuania. There's more obvious candidates of contemporary wars, the protracted and ongoing insurgency in Afghanistan and Pakistan or as the convenient short form used within the U.S. military, AFPAC, and the hellish spiral of violence that still swirls brutally around Iraq and Syria. And let's not forget the recent additions of Yemen, and before that Libya and Nigeria, countries in which rebel and insurgent groups are fighting the government and the usually U.S.-backed forces in conflicts that are characterized by a mixture of air power and low-rent infantry formations, guys driving around in Toyota pickups. All these kinds of conflicts are lumped together in the category hybrid war. And what brings these conflicts together, according to Frank Hoffman, the original author of the theory, is that they defy placement into the categories of the traditional modes of war. That is, irregular and terrorist warfare versus conventional large formation combat. Think of World War II, hundreds, thousands of tanks barreling across the countryside. Think of World War I trench warfare. Think of Korea embattled fortifications and so on. But now the, war, the modes of war have themselves become blurred. Everything is subsumed in a generalized conflict environment, or what they call the battle space. Tactics and strategies which were formerly the purview of only the most powerful states, such as the ability to inflict nuclear violence, they slide down the spectrum towards other belligerent actors, dispersing. The specter of a terrorist dirty bomb is the successor of nuclear panic in the post-Cold War era. Conversely, insurgent tactics, terror bombings, IEDs, assassination campaigns, they're being met with what seems like excruciatingly low-level counter-responses. Slow, trudging, barely effective movements like what we see now happening with ISIS. 
The United States military has in the past decade been extensively retooled, shifting expertise from armored pincer movements of thousands of tanks to door-to-door searches, bomb-sniffing robot sweeps, drones, extra-legal killing campaigns. A multi-million dollar drone strikes a beat-up pickup truck in the dirt track in rural Yemen. If these descriptions tend to emphasize the lopsided coming together of enormously divergent scales of war-making, the homegrown rebel, and the global hegemon, it is because almost all violent conflicts in the past few decades have been defined in large measure by their asymmetry. It has been the challenge of state militaries, like that of the United States and Russia, to figure out how to adapt their overwhelming conventional firepower into effective and efficient and precise instruments in the, quote, small wars. Perhaps they would be better called post-colonial wars, imperial wars, that they find themselves fighting in Afghanistan, in Serbia, in Iraq, in Chechnya, in Somalia, actually all around the world. The concept of hybrid war is particularly relevant because it doesn't limit itself just to these asymmetric engagements. Hybrid war doesn't refer to the qualities of counterinsurgency or constabulary actions performed by states against intransigent rebel groups. Instead, what it refers to is the general quality of conflict in the 21st century, a blurring of lines between the very actors of conflict, so that the difference between state and non-state actors, the essential logic of the logic of the concept of asymmetric war, is effaced in favor of a flattened strategic logic of all-encompassing war. We don't necessarily need to talk about insurgents and states because everybody is equally involved in this ongoing conflict. The theory of hybrid war, as proposed by Frank Hoffman, is buttressed by three main thematic pillars. They are the convergence of the means of war, the proliferation of actors, and the fusion of the modes of war. And in the next little while on this show, reciprocal presupposition, I'm going to be going through each of those in succession. The means of war, the proliferation of actors, and the fusion of the modes of war. First off, the convergence of means. Frank Hoffman argues that the means of war, which is the tactics, the tools, the mechanisms employed by belligerents, are all kind of converging. That is, the convergence of the conventional, for example, artillery, air power, aircraft carriers, and the unconventional, for example, political subversion or terrorist bomb attacks, they all can now occur inside the same campaign as part of the same strategy. Hoffman stresses that one of the unique qualities of today's hybrid war is that not only are conventional and unconventional tactics used within the same campaign, but, quote, in most conflicts, these components occurs in different theaters or in distinctly different formations. This is in prior conflicts. Quote, in hybrid wars, these forces become blurred into the same force in the same battle space. Neither the regular nor the irregular are privileged, end quote. You may be thinking, this describes guerrilla war, or this isn't all that new. But hybrid war is not guerrilla war or insurgency, a term which might characterize maybe Mao Zedong's communists in their campaign to control China. Nor is it a conventional bipolar conflict that happens to include some kind of a supporting element of partisans, like the Soviet clandestine war behind German lines in World War II. In the Chinese case, Mao emphasized the primacy of the irregular character of the People's War. That was the first and most important aspect of the war. 
despite the fact that the doctrine of people's war included a conventional military phase at its climax, the point when the communists would take over the cities. And as it was popularized and exported to other asymmetric struggles, like in Vietnam, Cuba, or Algeria, the people's guerrilla war was understood as inherently unconventional. And that was a key attribute of that kind of war. Conversely, in the Russian example, or maybe a better example is that of the French resistance behind German lines or in German-occupied France in World War II, the paramilitary activity of the partisans and resistance might have been a contributor to the war effort on a, maybe on a material level, but on a morale level. But it was determinedly insignificant when compared to the overall military efforts, the conventional military efforts of the Western Allies and the Red Army. Hybrid warfare describes a manner of conflict in which the guerrilla or insurgent and the uniformed soldier operate in the same theater and in which neither is accorded preeminence. Each may perform roles of equivalent importance to the tactical, operational, and even strategic outcomes of the conflict. It's readily apparent that this type of conflict is the most common in today's global security environment. In every war or violent confrontation currently underway, there are both official and unofficial agents at work, both state and non-state actors, and the methods employed by these belligerents are not confined to the role nominally associated with their status, their status as legally sanctioned or otherwise. You see, paramilitaries, neighborhood watch groups, drug cartels operating in the same theaters of action, in the same conflicts as state military forces. The boundaries between regular and irregular warfare are blurring. Even non-state groups are increasingly gaining access to the kinds of weapons that were once the exclusive preserve of states. One interesting example is Rio de Janeiro, uh, Brazil. And it's, it's this ongoing war in the favelas. Uh, Amnesty International just came out with an extensive report detailing the mass extrajudicial killings perpetrated by the Brazilian police, both uh, local and federal police in that area, in the, in the poorer slums that are called favelas around Rio de Janeiro, in which thousands of black men primarily are killed every year by the police with no consequence whatsoever. Things like that. Also, the flip side, some of these places, like the favelas, some of these parts of rural Mexico, some of these places in Libya, these non-state, quote-unquote, terrorist groups are providing basic functions of the government, like health care and taxation. Everything is blurred. In Iraq and Libya, insurgents drive tanks, and they wield sophisticated laser-guided surface-to-air missiles that can only be designed and manufactured by the most powerful countries in the world. They wield them against those very countries. From Sinaloa to Kandahar, uniformed security agents conduct night raids, massacres, and targeted assassinations. Illegal activities. In December 2014, there was a report from the Senate Select Committee on the CIA's Detention and Interrogation Program. Famous report. Nobody remembers it now, of course. Two years ago. Old news. It revealed that many, many of the very unpalatable techniques, torture, that's employed by the United States in its counterinsurgency efforts. And yet, things go on. Of course, there's a debate. People talk. Should we have done it? Should we keep doing it? It's back on the table now. Donald Trump says so anyway. Hybrid war theory encompasses this complex and heterogeneous, often contradictory mixture of tactics 
and says this is the predominant way of war in the 21st century. And accelerating this convergence of the means of war is the increasing availability and power of information technology, of course. Modern social and multi-platform media networks and the simultaneous proliferation of advanced, super-advanced weapon systems. And it's amazing that only, even though it was only recognized as an official area of military conflict by the U.S. Department of Defense in 2011, cyber warfare was identified as a critical site of international and transnational competition by the theorists of the RAND think tank, Arkila and Ronfeld, already way back in the 90s. And it's kind of obvious, you would, you would assume. It took a while for the official military to catch up. Now the military spends $5.1 billion at least on quote-unquote cyber combat, espionage, and counterintelligence, a figure which is sure to keep rising. The Internet has become a weapon of cardinal significance in the global contest over the configuration of the political order. And it's used both by states like the U.S. and Russia and by non-state actors and organized crime. An amazing example of this is the 2007 cyber attacks that paralyzed the Estonian economy. Look this up. It's incredible. Just shut everything down. And it revealed the power and vulnerability of the Internet as a component of international relations and an excellent example of the relevance of info information technology to hybrid warfare. It's important to note that these attacks came at a time of quote-unquote peace, or maybe more accurately, a time when conflict was not openly recognizable, although it was still simmering in the background, which is the basic idea here. One of the key features of the burgeoning battlefield of Infowar is its real accessibility. Large and powerful states will continue to have the advantage in funds, infrastructure, personnel, but the basic tools of hacking, espionage, and disinformation are more available than ever to small groups and individuals. Information war is an arena in which relatively small investments can be leveraged for disproportionately impactful results. The North Koreans, relatively impoverished and small state, reportedly employ thousands of highly trained hackers to advance their nation's interests, or what more likely the party's interests. And they confound the efforts of the U.S. to control cyberspace as a monopoly. Russia, another example, is infamous as a welcoming home and a fertile breeding ground for cyber criminals, perhaps better labeled mercenaries, who blur the line between state-sanctioned and illicit agents of infowar. Internet attacks emanate from anywhere. And the scale of the American response to the cyber threat, $5.1 billion a year, is indicative of a real concern about the utterly diffuse combat environment of cyberspace. As terrorists and insurgent groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS learn how to use information attacks, they demonstrate and exploit the decreasing cost of entry for participation in contemporary war. Other examples, deniability and anonymity also play a role in the contribution of information technology to the becoming hybrid of modern war. Cyber attacks are not often attributable, or if they are, they're only tentatively so, never quite sure. There's all this complication that gets added to the digital battle space, and it obscures the already complex interrelations between the variety of parties involved in any given conflict. Indeed, it gets hard to talk about any given conflict because everything is so deeply interwoven and interrelated. The perpetrators of the devastating Estonian attacks in 2007 were often assumed to be Russian, but of course they've still not been conclusively identified. 
and confusion still reigns on whether or not the 2014 Sony hacks were indeed perpetrated by the North Korean government as part of a cyber espionage and disinformation campaign. Despite the best efforts of American counterintelligence to interfere, for example, with the publication of Al-Qaeda's magazine, they call it Inspire in English, actually it's their English magazine, Despite their best efforts, including the drone assassination of its contributor and editor Anwar Awlaki and Samir Khan, despite that, the magazine continues to be published. New editors, new contributors, anonymous or pseudonymous, all continue to emerge. And it's this apparent overreaction of the U.S. in killing Awlaki and Khan and the extrajudicial premeditated murder of its own citizen, Awlaki was an American citizen on Yemeni soil, for their incitement to terrorism is a revealing glimpse into the convergence of the means of war. Indeed, of the entry into the folds of war, objects and phenomena that were previously considered not part of war. Magazines. This particular drone strike in Yemen is a poignant illustration, not just that the U.S., is willing to brazenly overreact to relatively minor provocations, which could be a pretty credible claim. But instead, more importantly, that the U.S. military has begun to understand the hybrid nature of war. Because publishing the in magazine Inspire is not an ancillary or a minor aspect of Al-Qaeda's operations. Insofar as it stands as the flagship of Al-Qaeda brand to English-speaking world, and it's a powerful tool for recruiting the alienated young readership, Inspire is a critical component of Al-Qaeda's war effort. The media, in general, as both the state and its insurgent adversaries understand, doesn't simply deliver messages about war. It is itself a weapon. Multi-platform news media, for example, play a particularly critical role. In the years following 9-11, American and Canadian pundits couldn't help but link Al Jazeera, which is a pretty excellent news network by today's standards, I think, with Bin Laden and then with Al-Qaeda. It was the terrorist news station. It took a long time for them to get into the United States, and they never actually were able to make it work there. And so it's obviously spurious, this association between Al Jazeera and, and, and quote-unquote the terrorists, and it's been largely disregarded. But there's some element, some really interesting kernel of truth to that perception. Al-Qaeda, or sorry, that's my bad, Al Jazeera, as a state-funded arms-length organization of the Qatari Emirate, it's funded by the government of Qatar, is not explicitly a foreign policy tool of that government. But insofar as its uniquely Arab and global Southern orientation, it contri contributes to a shift in the global media climate and the changes the tenor of the discussion of news events worldwide, Al Jazeera can be seen as a kind of a parapolitical, not quite paramilitary element within the broader facets of international relations. They promote a worldview which is not necessarily amenable to the worldview that the U.S. military, for example, might like people to adopt. They disseminate information that the U.S. military, perhaps the Israeli military, perhaps governments of other Arab countries might not like them to disseminate. And if, as Frank Hoffman asserted, quote, perception matters more than results in the physical battlefield, end quote, 
perception matters more than results in the physical battlefield, then the ability to shape perception takes on a striking importance in the full spectrum of hybrid warfare. It's no wonder the U.S. military tried so often to keep Al Jazeera and other non-sanctioned media outlets away from its operations in the 2003 Iraq War. And they tried to marginalize its capabilities. By that I mean it bombed them repeatedly. You can look this up. They say it was a mistake. And this is because it's a lot harder to, quote, shape the narrative when outside forces, like Al Jazeera, offer competing stories via live stream or satellite TV. But even Al Jazeera makes a soft entry when it comes to the militarization of the media. Other players are elevating the art of integrating news with the war effort that it purports to document to a much higher level. See if you can guess which news agency I'm thinking of. The advent of Russia's RT network and the role it plays in shaping or distorting the narrative on Russia-related news is an excellent illustration of the ongoing battle on the psychological and moral level of conflict. I'd argue that RT's brazenly anti-U.S. bias, its persistent pro-Kremlin insinuations, and its Putinophile flavor, they don't utterly discredit it as a news organization because the perspective and the coloring of RT is precisely what situates it among other proper news agencies. The lopsidedness of RT's output is just a contrasting perspective, and it, it casts it into a sharp relief. The dramatic bias in the pro-U.S. slant of most of the mainstream Western media. I'm not saying RT is held to the same kind of standards of journalistic integrity as some of the Western news outlets, but I don't think that some of the Western news outlets are held to a very high standard of integrity either. So the multi-platform media agency, RT, has long been an implement in the game of war making. And its novel theoretical and strategic gesture is that it's almost humor humorously contrarian. It's it's almost making fun of itself, the way how, how it twists news almost exactly to be the inverse of the Western portrayal. It's as if Moscow is saying through its support of RT, which is its sort of a de facto mouthpiece, hey, we're in this media game too. And now it's obvious that the media is part of the generalized war machine. From the perspective of an Anglophone media consumer, RT is just the tip of the iceberg. Russian language state-owned or state-inflected media dominate the information scape of much of Eastern Eurasia, and the worldview of those that those media facilitate is dramatically different from those that are fostered by Western media. Considering that the basic medium of war is now understood to be the people, war takes place among the people, Control over the perspective of those people is crucially and directly relevant to achieving success in the hybridizing realm of politics and the military. Further adding to the complexity of contemporary warfare is the prevalence and the gr growing purview of social media, which allow for the shaping of perspectives on the level of the sing singular consumer or participant, which ends up in a proliferation of molecular micro-information wars, custom wage on the battlefield of the hearts and minds of specifically targeted groups and individuals. You can find a lot of information about this if you just dig a little.
Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pokemon Go, you name it. Social media are not just recruitment tools for otherwise marginalized terrorist or separatist groups. They themselves are the site of ongoing, unfolding information conflict. There's a lot of people who have researched this quite extensively other than myself, the way social media are used as tools, battlegrounds of contemporary war, mines of information and venues for shaping perceptions. That's sort of besides my general point here. Parallel to these shifts that are wrought by information technology are advancements in weapons technology that makes powerful inclusions in the arsenals of both conventional and irregular military and belligerent groups. In the 1980s, this is a well-known story to some people, the United States supplied the Afghan Mujahideen through the CIA with advanced Stinger missile systems that could take down Soviet helicopters with ease. Prior to that, the Mujahids had been using hunting rifles, old British military surplus, homemade weapons. Not just that, but they were under-equipped. The cost of the covert weapons supply operation was high, into the billions of dollars. Of course, we'll never know exactly the cost, but billions were spent by the American taxpayers. Unbeknownst to them, of course. But the price of entry now into sophisticated anti-material armaments is getting lower. High technology is employed with relish by insurgent groups. Failed states and violent sub-state groups that inhabit them can't make much use of highly expensive and elaborately complex fighter jets, for example. But high technology in our current circumstances also proliferates through the dispersal and the widespread adoption of other technologies that are increasingly portable and accessible. Think about laptops, cell phones, internet, night vision goggles, anti-tank weapon systems, GPS, satellite phones, etc. These things are all over the place. And they're not only easy for insurgencies to employ, but they're also ideally situated to the tasks that they're set out to accomplish. The technologies are in the process of super-empowering not just small groups such as terrorist organizations, gangs, organized criminal networks, anarchists, extreme environmentalists, this is a quote, by the way, but even Unabomber-style individuals. And again, since this was written initially, we've seen a dramatic increase, at least it seems to my eyes, in these kinds of spectacular attacks perpetrated by one or two or a handful of individuals has an impact greatly disproportionate to the amount of effort put in. And either through the proceeds of organized crime or extortion or some kind of ally and supply schemes with richer governments, non-state groups like the Islamic State or the Taliban or the militias of the Donetsk People's Republic in eastern Ukraine, they're now flush with state-of-the-art weaponry. It makes business doing a lot harder for state militaries that try to oppose them. Rocket-propelled grenades, old hat. Advanced man-pad, shoulder-fired anti-tank systems? Ah, they're common all over the Middle East. And Kalashnikovs are, of course, so common as to be basically unremarkable. Even the highly specialized U.S.-made 50 caliber sniper rifles are ubiquitous. Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant, however you want to call them, they've got hundreds of them. Thousands, maybe. 
in the Donbass, the formerly ragtag people's militias that ally themselves with Russia, seeking to separate from the Western-oriented Ukraine, have been seen driving around in multi-million dollar self-propelled anti-aircraft rocket batteries of the sort that purportedly shot down flight MH17. In Syria, ISIS, or possibly Jabhat al-Nusra, may have got its hands on weaponized chlorine gas. The, the debate about the truth of chemical weapons use in Syria has been a major battleground itself, the debate. And that's had a huge impact on events on the ground and on U.S. politics. Obama's red line. Somebody crossed it in Syria. At least that's what we're intended to believe. Nothing really happened. And this list doesn't even begin to address the innumerable, highly effective, homemade, improvised weapons that have been made possible by cheaply available technological components like cell phones for detonators, drones for surveillance, wireless devices for IEDs. You don't have to dig too far on the internet to find some pretty spectacular footage put together by ISIS using drones for their propaganda images. So the point is with this that whether through external aid or internal ingenuity, advanced munitions and technological techniques are finding their ways into the hands of small armed groups that enable them to threaten their much more established adversaries. Things have gone to the point where the Western military and security theorists have begun to question the very utility of armaments like tanks, aircraft carriers, and fighter jets. All of these things that are disproportionately or asymmetrically vulnerable to the much cheaper and much more readily available modern anti-material weaponry. The U.S. Navy or elements within it speculates that the entire U.S. Pacific carrier fleet could be compromised if the supposedly inferior, and definitely looks like it on paper, Chinese People's Liberation Army is able to deploy its new cheap and abundant land-fired anti-ship missiles. They say it could wipe out the entire Pacific fleet. Even simpler technology, in the hands of dozens of Iranian speedboats, was famously capable of defeating U.S. warships in a super complex simulation, which you can read about online as well. They just had a number of speedboats, and they just swarmed. Advanced U.S. warships couldn't cope, at least in the simulation. So all of this is to say that the means of war are converging. Some of the most advanced weapons available to the lowliest groups, while some of the simplest techniques are now critical components in the toolkits of the world's most powerful militaries. The distinction between conventional and unconventional tactics is less and less relevant in a world where non-state insurgent groups combine pickup trucks with advanced weaponry, where unmarked soldiers take over and annex territories like Crimea without a shot being fired, and where the world's most powerful military cannot decisively defeat after 15 years of concerted effort a band of poorly trained irregulars in Afghanistan. We're going to go to a break. I put a pen 
pen to the paper. This time as visual as possible. Guns blast at the hospital. The walls are whitewashed with tin rooftops. To show love, you lick two shots. It's dangerous, man. Journalists hire gunmen. There's violent women. Kids trust no one because fire burned them. Refugees dying boats headed for peace. Is anyone scared of death here? Not in the least. I walk by the old lady selling coconuts under the tree. Life is cheap here, but wisdom is free. The beach boys hang on the side, leaning with pride. Scam artists and gangsters, fiending the fight. I walk with three kids that can't wait to meet God lately. That's Bucktooth, Muhammad, and Crybaby. What they do every day just to eat, Lord of mercy. Strapped with an AK and they bloodthirsty. So what's hardcore? Really? Are you hardcore? Hmm. So what's hardcore? Really? Are you hardcore? By the weight of the gun Rock and propel grenades Blow your way if you front We got no police Ambulance or firefighters We start riots By burning car tires They looting And everybody start shooting Bullshit politicians Talking about solutions But it's all talk You can't go half a block Without a roadblock You don't pay at the roadblock You get your throat shot And each roadblock Is set up by these gangsters And different gangsters Go by different standards For example The evening is a no-go Unless you want to wear a bullet Like a logo In the day You should never take the alleyway The only thing that validates you Is the AK They chew on chat It's sort of like coca leaves And ain't no police So what's hardcore? Really? Are you hardcore? Hmm. So what's hardcore? Really? Are you hardcore? Hmm. I'ma spit these verses Cause I feel annoyed And I'm not gonna quit Till I fill the void If I rhyme about home And got descriptive I'd make 50 cent Look like Limp Biscuit. It's true And don't make me rhyme about you I'm from where the kids Is addicted to glue Get ready He got a good grip On the machete Make rappers say They do it for love Like R. Kelly It's hard Harder than Harlem And Compton intertwined Harder than Harbor And Bin Laden And Rewind To that earlier part When I was kinda like We begin our day By the weight of the gun Rock a propel grenades Blow you weight If you front Ain't got no police Ambulances Firefighters We start riots By burning car tires They looting And everybody Start shooting What's hardcore Really Are you hardcore mm. So what's hardcore Really Question is, Are you hardcore mm.
done by three. Every family wanted three cars, and the freeways into the city became clogged. Where do you start? They chopping down trees in the parks for the parkways for the cars. Carbon toxins, and I drop from disease. But gasoline still feeds the economy. Suck heartily, as if from the artery of Satan. The nameless reaping and raking, and be profiting off of the need of its own making. And while plants and trees get that energy for free, why can't complex beings like we? You see, it's a shame that the sun's rays are harmful these days, but doesn't it display open? It's energy's potency We got men on the moon and we got robots on Mars Why we gotta pay to make the wheels move underneath our cars They hard The original diesel engine was invented to run off of a blend That was made from vegetables This wasn't capital intensive, hard to control The barons of oil production worried they would lose hold If energy could be grown as crops upon farmers' plots Then who controls the profit that was to be gotten? The truth is they could not stop the abundance And these biofuels would put oil companies all under And it's no wonder when you that much cash that your engine's still designed to run off of gas Cause you still got 10 or 20 good years left Yeah, to the year of the car crash We'll suck that black sap until the very last year of the car crash 